0: Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Strength and Redeemer. Amen. I was drinking my morning coffee while Ruby was stirring her Rice Krispie cereal this last week when she asked me, if God dies, will the lights go out? Uh, Ruby hadn't even paused. This was not a solemn moment. Breakfast had not come to a screeching halt. One moment I was thinking about how well I had done cooking the eggs. The next moment I was entertaining an earnest question about the entire cosmic structure of the universe. This is how it is for all of us, I think. On the bus, or cutting grass, or fastening an earring, Sometimes a thought falls like a bird on our head. What does it all mean? How does it all fit together? Like, for real? What makes children different from us, in part, is that they're not afraid to ask. Or rather, they're not afraid to ask in mouthfuls, um, in between mouthfuls of crispy rice cereal. They've not been shamed for giving expression to thoughts that are misty and Undefined. They've not been conditioned to think that questions that don't have a great answer shouldn't be asked, or shouldn't be asked casually. If God dies, will the lights go out? Will the sun keep shining if God gets hit by a car? Will the earth keep spinning if God meets some untimely tragic end? After a few moments of crosstalk um, about other things, the whole kitchen table had taken up Ruby's question What is death like? We started talking about the circle of life that when we die, our bodies become food and energy that goes back into the ground and gets thrown into the air, it gets caught up by other bodies, um, other living things, so that they may live too and have life. Now, about God, I said slowly. There's a lot about it that I don't understand and I'm still trying to figure it out. But I think God is like that, living and dying coming back to life. You taught me that, Ruby, when your choir sang Roll Away the Stone. But here's the tricky thing. God is also not like that. There's a part of God that never dies. God was there before there was a beginning, a great swirling power, and God will be there even after everything else is gone. I hadn't thought um, then of today's passage, but I wish I had. When John speaks of God's abstractness, he does it in shockingly non-abstract terms. Having a hard time thinking about God as an all-powerful and everlasting being, the Alpha and Omega, that which carries on even when all time stops? Picture this, John tells us, God is love. (laughs) Uh, What is it like to say that you follow this impossibly abstract God? John tells us plainly, those who say that they love God will love their brothers and sisters. John did not say that those who say that they love God will pass the theology SATs or understand how the whole world fits together. Everyone who loves, John tells us, knows God, abides in God. Everyone who loves, abides in God. This explanation of faith radically challenges so many contemporary understandings of religion. Understanding God is no harder or easier than understanding the nature of love. Understanding God is no harder or further from any person on earth than the one who hopes to love, to be known through love. Our sacred Christian scriptures are a thousand-mile journey down the very center of the heart of love, page after page attempting to show what John says so frankly. If you abide in love, then you abide in God, full stop. The veil that separates Christians from other faiths or Christians from other people, or Christians from anything, is no thicker than the mystery of love. Faith is not mysterious. It is mundane and as ordinary as the course of love. But love, love is a great and terrible mystery. (laughs) Love is crazy. I remember when that word, love, uh, came to have quite a bit more significance uh, for me than the bland stuff that we had talked about in Sunday school. When my parents told me that they loved me, that had a certain weight, yeah. But when in junior high, I fell in love with Sarah Hoff, who lived in the next town over and was a year older than me, scandalous, that had a totally different weight for me. Crush, as a description, was totally inadequate and absolutely revealing. Almost everything in my life got squeezed out as insignificant in comparison to Sarah. Everything was throttled, excitement, embarrassment, confidence, and shame. All of it at once, and all of it all the time. (laughs) Now during that time, I remember my youth group pastors dedicating quite a bit of energy Um, to what was on the table and what was off the table for teenagers in love. A brief disclaimer. What I was taught as a child, I remember with a child's memory. (laughs) There very likely was a more nuanced presentation than I remember, but what I remember being told was that actually I wasn't in love. And what was on the table for the scope of my relationship with Sarah was practically nothing at all. We were to be only friends. But I had lots of friends, and what I had with Sarah was not like that. When I was in the sixth grade, I was challenged by a youth group leader to read the entire Bible. Who does that? (laughs) I love being challenged, though, and sometime later I finished it, except for the Song of Solomon, which I was told was reading only for the married. There was a lot of that. Deep, exciting, crushing love was sealed off for the married, or the soon to be married. And so too was much of my body. It was sectioned off from me and from others until I had attained the magical status of being married. And even that was only ever described in strictly heteronormative terms. In Rowan Williams' seminal article on faith and sexuality titled The Body's Grace, he suggests that grace itself is a transformation that depends on knowing yourself to be seen in a certain way, as significant as wanted. Now, I have no great insight in how to talk to teenagers about their bodies and the scope of what love may mean for them. What I have realized, though, is that my youth group leaders were trying, understandably, to save me from the perils and risks of love. Not just an unwanted pregnancy and the particular cultural belief that shame must follow something like that, but rather from a different type of risk. The kind of risk that one opens up to when we take off our masks and are laid emotionally and physically bare before one another. That our most private and vulnerable aspects will be known by another person. This was a kind of hot furnace that they wanted to spare us from. But here's the deal, as so many of us know. That kind of love, experiencing moments of disaster or comedy or shame or success, is in no way determined by whether one has magically entered the kingdom of marriage or not. When we love, we risk. Period. Whether you are married or gay or transgender, there is no saving any of us from the risk that comes from someone who decides to love deeply. If anything, the risk only deepens when we enter into long-term relationships. I can hold a facade of having it all together for only so long. The question in my mind about whether my partner will sustain me in love, even when my faults are fully known over years. Where will that kind of intimacy leave us? Rowan Williams writes, Sexual faithfulness is not an avoidance of risk, but the creation of a context in which grace can abound because there is a commitment not to run away from the perception of another. Though sadly much of the biblical imagery of marriage is deeply patriarchal, St. Paul's suggestion in 1 Corinthians that both partners surrender individual ownership of their bodies to one another carries a remarkable egalitarian revaluation of sexuality. And that image is in part what leads the earliest wedding rites in the Anglican church that goes back to the 16th century um, uh, to have this exchange. With this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship. John's suggestion that God is love and our church's understanding of marriage shares at least this in common. The love of God is offered unconditionally. That that is what it means to love perfectly. Where there is perfect love, there is no fear. The love of God does not depend on our performance. It's just there, infinitely extended to us when we are ready to receive it. And this is the love we hope to have with one another, that we might reveal ourselves. Take off our masks, be known to one another, not in spite of all that, but because of it, there may be love, deep abiding love. If we understand God this way, then Ruby's question, as she surely always knew, has the force of a freight train. If love dies, will the lights go out? Yes, my sister, surely they would. So we must love. The light of the world depends upon it. Amen.